Dave. All right. All nice right. To see you. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we made it. Hmm? Great to see you, Hashem. Thanks for having me. On my way here, I, I, I remembered how when we first did something together, it was in 06, and then uh, 15 months later, we had the global financial crisis. So we couldn't have asked for a better time to go and deploy capital. And now we're uh, talking about, uh, or not talking, I mean, we, have, we, we have already put our uh, JV together in uh, looking at venture and private equity funds specifically. Your timing back then in 06 when you left Stanford Endowment managing their venture and private equity to set up McKenna, and 15 years later, you decided to go and just focus on the private equity and venture as an asset class that we now said this is maybe the time for us to just do an offering specifically focused on that and who else to do it than you. With your whole lifestyle evolves around mm -hmm. being with these entrepreneurs and these uh, uh, venture uh, uh, funds. And so I'm curious now to hear your views about where are we given you know, there is a lot of fraughtiness and now we start, we saw the public market correct. Remains to be seen if there's going to be more of a correction. And uh, if we're going to get to see now the privates correct quickly or take their time, given that uh, there is still demand for capital and there is money waiting to be on the sideline, but you know how money waiting to be in the sideline tends to be there. Their, they get super hyped when everything is going fine and then they take a break. Well, Ahasham, it's great to be here. It's always great to, to catch up. And, um, you know, I've valued, uh, you know, now a decade and a half, pushing two decades of relationship with you and your partner, Khalifa. And, you know, as they say, sort of history, you know, often repeats itself. And if it doesn't, it rhymes. And certainly that comment can be made about the financial markets. We've investing both of us for, um, you know, decades We've seen those up and down cycles. And, you know, interesting comment on the timing. As you know, you don't pick a moment to start a business based on a cycle, right? The idea comes <laughs> to you, the situations there. So in 05 and 06, when we set up McKenna, it wasn't like we knew that we were doing it two days, two week, uh, years before one of the great downturns. Just like as, you know, we've embarked on this endeavor, you know, we did it because the timing matched up irrespective of sort of what the overall market conditions were. But you're absolutely right that we're similarly in a um, softening period. We don't know what, nobody knows what the future holds and how severe it'll be and how long lived it will be. But also one of the things that gets me excited is some of the best businesses, firms, and individual companies are start, you know, or have started come together during very difficult times. In some ways, that makes them more thoughtful, sometimes more innovative. Um, and so, you know, I think we have sort of history on our side as we're embarking on what we're doing and the collaboration that we're bringing to the table. And then it's true, I've spent two decades living in Silicon Valley, right by Stanford. Of course, worked for Stanford for a number of years, running their venture capital portfolio before starting McKenna and then putting that part of the portfolio to work. You know, everywhere you live, there's sort of, there's a prevalence of 
you know, a thing in industry types of people. And obviously living in Silicon Valley, there, you know, it's the home of venture capital. Many of the largest tech companies were started and still are there and people in your sort of social circles work at them and our founders and it's sort of in the blood of the place, which I've always loved and enjoyed. It's invigorating, it's always changed, but it also has enabled me, it's, you know, sort of relative to living somewhere else, it's given me the advantage of understanding it at a much more granular level and hopefully made me a better investor, a better, you know, firm executive um, uh, focused in those asset classes. So to me, when I look at, uh, at any investment, it's a, it's, a, it's a cash flow. And in private equity, it's a current cash flow. Obviously, you can grow that cash flow with more operational or revenue growth. And in venture, uh, there is an idea and it's a future cash flow. So we know that you know, all of these uh, cash flows, whether today or in the future, when you discount them, to today with a, a, a much lower cost of capital, as in what happened with interest rates dropping all the way to zero and staying at zero, and the flush of liquidity, valuations went up through the roof. And now the reverse is, uh, is happening. So we've moved from a period when everybody is just wanting to invest in venture, and still, and still to, to, to today people are very excited about it, uh, to a situation where now some people are taking a break and then the valuation are starting for these businesses that need to attract capital. They need to now think about uh, where are they going to get the money from if investors start thinking about alternative investment opportunities. So I'm curious now to, to really think through this discipline what makes an investment in venture now more attractive than before? If it's the same, you know, the, the, the new ideas, all of these things are still, are still the same and, and there are very uh, interesting discoveries. But what is the difference now in, in investing in them versus, uh, let's say, a year ago or maybe a, a, in a year or, 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 or two uh, from now? Yeah, well, there's certainly linkages, more than linkages, between the public markets and the venture capital. Those typically occur at the later end of public, public markets, so later stage private companies, the IPO market, the M&A market, are the exit mar market for venture capital. Why experienced investors in venture, the endowment methodology, tends to lean very heavily into the seed early stage is you know your capital goes into these businesses, uh, big portfolios of which some of the stars emerge at a very early stage at a very attractive valuation. So when it, when it gets often many years later, five, eight, 10 years later, when the, when the success, success stories take hold and they do later rounds and their valuations might climb into the billions or tens of billions, certainly those markets are impacted by valuations that occurred in the public markets. But if your capital started at the very earliest stage, those are great successes, whether the company's valued at 40 billion or 10 billion, it's triple digit multiples on your capital. Money that starts going in late stage, that's impacted much more. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly there's types of investors that focus on, on that. 
um, catching a bit of an arbitrage in an up market between sort of mid to late stage venture into the, the, the private equity, uh, into the public markets. Um, but, you know, I'd say many of the, many of the uh, most experienced investors will have some exposure eventually on, in the later stage, but they try to get as much capital as they can into the early stage. And so the early stage is the riskiest because it could be maybe a seed or, 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 or even a angel investing. Yeah. And then the growth stage is the, the model is proven, there is revenue, but maybe it's, it's not cash flow, cash flow positive. So why, 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 while I see how people perceive the growth equity as it's a proven model, it needs to grow and valuations can go up, and you don't need venture capitalists to help you build the company, whereas in the early stage, you do have. But at the end of the day, isn't this always a function of, it's a level of, of riskiness, so angel is, is the most risky, growth is less risky, and then you have that added complication of, as you said, the general market environment. Yeah, correct. So, so now where we are, now yeah. where we are, the liquid market corrected, Yeah remains to be seen if there is maybe another leg, leg down. And now the private markets from the, the recent, uh, most recent raises, it's, it's starting to get uh, impacted. How does that leave the angel or, or, the, or, or, or the early stage? Yeah, so, so the, the earliest the, the stage is, the latest it trickles down and hits them and it may not much at all. Right now, you know, we're probably into the impact to the, certainly the mid stages and maybe even sort of some pricing in the A rounds. Seed, not too much. You know, a seed investment could be putting in a few hundred thousand dollars at a two, three, four million dollar um, enterprise value. So great entrepreneurs with great ideas, those, those are still happening. There's copious, copious amounts of money more so now than ever um, for, for the earliest stages. But certainly, you know, and, and every time you have a correction, whether, you know, up and down the chain, things tend to slow down. People want to see where things are headed. Um, if they've been busy for years, um, they don't feel like they're in a hurry. They can, they can pause and see where things end up. Um, most people sort of look inwardly. Entrepreneurs will focus on you know, cutting their burn rate, being frugal, battening down the hatches. Um, and that's kind of where we are, it feels like today. You'll start seeing numbers coming out that every quarter, how much money is put to work and what in aggregate. And those numbers are way down, of course, versus last year and over, over prior years. And so judging by the amount of liquidity that came into the system and now that liquidity that is coming out, how long do you think that that process could take? Is it a two to three years? It's really hard to say. Um, you know, we've certainly seen periods, 2000 stretch for a couple of years. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I was going to say yeah. that, that study that, 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 that we both worked on together in looking at the vintages of 99, 2001, 2002. Yeah, you had a multi-year crazy run-up, never at, up to that point in time, never seen before the, the Stanford portfolio that I managed for a number of years, had triple-digit IRRs for several years, but then they had, you know, I, I remember like 
kind of a 40% decline followed by a 40% decline followed by an additional double-digit decline. Net-net round trip, it was a great outcome for Stanford, but it was, you know, joyous on the way up and, and painful on the way down. Um, so sometimes you'll have a multi-year situation. Other times you'll have something that's a bit of a blip, like in 2020 when COVID happened, you had a quarter or two where there was a great deal of uncertainty, you know, with the, the, the Fed and the central bank interactions and the flood of capital in. It was, it was a very quick rebound. Um, you'll also have periods, you know, the, the 2010s, you'll have, you know, extended periods where it's a positive environment. Some singular companies go out and have great success, but you know, if you look at aggregate numbers for venture, it's sort of a ho-hum environment. But companies that get through that reach what follows, and, the, and the, they're bigger and they're stronger by then, and then you'll, you'll have incredibly successful outcomes. So it's hard to draw patterns in all of that, and it's definitely difficult, if not impossible, to sort of look in a crystal ball and know from this point forward what the next year or two looks like, what the next five years look like. But definitely from the studies that uh, we were familiar with and studies that, that we did together, the, the difference between the median and the upper quartile plays a big role here. Yeah, it's interesting. And this is true, definitely true in private equity. And I think we've done a lot of that analysis in private equity too. Often that recessionary vintages tend to be very good ones for obvious reasons. Pricing is a little better only the better projects and entrepreneurs or companies sort of get funded in the private equity world where we actually have companies that have profits and they're sort of more normalized, um, more understandable businesses and products and services. You have lower multiples off of suppressed earnings and then talented private equity investors can sell them three, five, seven years later when both have rebounded and the compounding of both together turns out to be great outcomes. In venture, pretty similarly, often the most painful couple of years are followed by some of the best vintages. What we also know is that if you look at sort of the spread between me the median returns in a given vintage versus the spread of top quartile, top decile, the best managers defined by being sort of top decile, top quartile, do that much better relative to the median during those stressful times presumably because they have skill and pattern recognition, they've been through them before and they're savvier in managing their portfolios and, and investing during those times. That's an interesting notice because to me, venture has always been an excluded club. People you know, who know what they're doing, they show these, these uh, interesting investment opportunities to their uh, uh, friends and then it developed into a, a fund, fund structure and then, you know, over the past five to seven years, you started having uh, a new source of capital, whether it's family offices or other people who want to do direct deals. Right. And it happened, I think, more in the growth equity versus the earliest, uh, early stage. So uh, your, your observation on the reason why, you know, the top quartile do well, especially in the, uh, in, in the tough vintages or the recession vintages is because of their ability to nurse and to go through, the, through that process. So I wonder 
what's your observation on people who went and did these direct deals versus investing in uh, the well-established venture funds? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a risky game and it's, I think there's more tears than victory in that. There's always the anecdote of the person that, you know, frankly got lucky, got into the right company and, you know, told a hundred of their friends what the outcome was and encouraged them to do the same. But there's far more capital that suffers total losses in many of those cases. Um, it's not the case that every great deal is found by the great venture investors, but if you look at the data over long periods of time, there's an unfair advantage, whether it's a great entrepreneur that wants to take their money from an elite firm, if they're able to, because it builds their brand, et cetera. There's a lot of reasons we could have a longer conversation about that. Um, but generally it's, it's a, you know, if, if there are deals around available for those sorts of investors, there are issues with them. They would have been snapped up by, you know, there's hundreds or thousands of firms. Um, and so what, you know, one should ask themselves, why am I seeing it, <laughs> right? Um, that's, that's often the first question to ask. And so, you know, each one of these waves, um, it's the fear of missing out, and they, they often go on for a number of years, and, and, and the music continues to play, and people hear about situations that they missed, and they can't overcome the, um, you know, the opportunity to, to dive in, but often that happens too late or too clumsily or poorly thought through, and then those investors pay the price. So, so do you think the jury is still out as in whether the classical venture capital fund model is the way to go versus uh, people doing their own selection of deals? Ab absolutely. Uh, you know, so first of all, you can always take the flip side of this. As an entrepreneur, one would say, hey, more sources of capital, the better, right? It's kind of buyer beware. And certainly there are situations where an entrepreneur who the door slammed at all the top venture firms and they passed the hat among friends and family. I was listening to a podcast on about Peloton, the early days at Peloton. Eventually, all the conventional venture capital firms passed it up. The friends and family of John Foley, I think the founder's name is, put in money. Tiger Global eventually came in, but um, after many tries. And so there are success stories. Mm -hmm. But I think there's far more success stories the other way where the you know uh, well-known or well-regarded or highly skilled venture capital firms backed entrepreneurs and got got the success from that. So what what I would say to that is, if one has access and also or or knows how to invest in venture capital firms, that's by far and away the best way to go. And I would warn off pretty much anybody. <laughs> from the deal-by-deal deal approach, especially in venture capital. Um, but certainly there's AngelList and all kinds of sort of new platforms that allow individuals and often entrepreneurs sort of go on there, but mostly as a hobby to look at deal flow and so forth. You know, it's a, I, I always worry when the word hobby uh, <laughs> is used yeah. because people, people forget what does it take to, uh, to be day in, day out, doing, doing something with the discipline and a process and everything. Yeah. 
versus you know when I have time I will I will come and make uh, take a look at this or, or make it yeah well you know every decade is I think as time marches on every decade there are more entrepreneurs in technology who have had success um, and who want to sort of put you know back to the hobby they feel like and they they can understand certain pieces of technology because they've been entrepreneurs, uh, successful entrepreneurs by definition, they feel like they have a, a view on other entrepreneurs and building a startup and they want to take some of their earnings and plow it back into bets. And so to some extent, some of them have but these expertise. are professional, but, 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 yeah. but, but, but these are really, it, it, they, are, they, are, they, they are professionals. Right. It's not the everyday person yeah, in the yeah, street. Yeah. This is what I owe, uh, you know, what worries me in the sense that the story is definitely attractive, like, you know, this new innovation in medicine or technology or whatever. So it's a very attractive story, but, uh, you know, no matter how something is attractive, it's the valuation that you're entering in. Yeah. And then, uh, 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 and then really the value add that you can bring to the, to, 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 uh, to the picture. So, so, so the, the most recent, pitches that have been going around for the past five years is these are businesses that don't don't need the value add of a venture right or uh, uh, so they can do their, their own thing they just need the capital do, do do you buy into that as in there is no value add from uh, bringing in a venture guy obviously he, he, he will he will argue about the valuation and what have you versus uh, Rich, uh, rich people who are looking to, who have hired the team that they want to do these deals. Yeah, so it's hard to generalize. I think certainly there's success stories in either camp. There's no doubt that a highly skilled venture capitalist with capital, but also a Rolodex with ideas on how to run a firm, who's dialed in the right way with the entrepreneur. So to let you know to to be there to support them, to give them pointers, to help them out, um, to help sell to their first customer, that sort of thing. There's lots of examples of extraordinary venture capitalists and the value to that. The leaders of some of the lead firms played those roles, Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins over the years, um, and others. Um, also, you know, there's a whole category of supply the capital and get out of the way of a great entrepreneur. And, you know, Tiger Global is a firm that's had its, you know, well-documented um, issues and struggles uh, this year, but for decades has provided that sort of capital, and the success is very clear. Um, it, it wasn't luck over that period of time. And so there's definitely a place for that, I think. Um, and each, each side has the things that didn't work out. So I think it's hard to, like, I, I, I probably wouldn't say one is bad, the other good. There's certainly good or bad outcomes on either, and each are legitimate. And I know as an entrepreneur myself, in some ways, along, you know, different parts of my career, I valued one or the other at certain times. Okay, so, so, yeah. so, so, so it's... If, it, if an entrepreneur has a clear vision of what they want to do, they just need capital, maybe capital that has branding with it, but they know the sector better. They've done this before. You know, I think there's a strong case to be made for provide the capital and that backing, and then sort of get 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 out of their way a little bit. Interesting.
I want to move to, 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 to secondaries, but before I do that, so as you know, we're big on diversification, as in, you, you, uh, you know, uh, there is no reason to be too concentrated in anything. Okay, you don't want to be over-diversified, but you have to be diversified. And I, and I guess, you know, in, in, in venture or private equity, once you put the money on the ground, if you happen to hit a bad recession or what have you, this is, uh, uh, the, the availability to, to maneuver is, is limited versus a liquid fund. Uh, so the idea of vintage diversification is an important one. Yeah. But I guess also, uh, you know, people keep asking that question, is this the right time to, 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 sure. to, 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 to invest? Uh, and uh, and it looks to me that you know th when people ask that question, they are thinking about you know to buy the market or not to not to buy the market. So how would you explain that in the realm of venture or private equity investing? Sure, it's a great question. It's like one of the main ones that comes up certainly during times like this. So I'd make a few points. The first is there's no doubt, especially in venture, you'll have vintages that are very good and you'll have vintages that are challenged. Any one vintage can do that. It's hard to predict even in that moment in time what that might be because there's too many variables that impact that. Often what happened three years out or eight years out in an excellent environment, that sort of thing. But there's also no doubt that the more vintage you, you get, the less volatile the sine wave is, right? And, and it's also clear that some of the worst vintages are fairly quickly followed by some of the best vintages. So if you're grabbing three or four vintages instead of one, you're much better off um, from a sort of risk management diversification standpoint. The reason why the funds are also important relative to your, you know, where we're talking about sort of single deal things is a great venture manager will, in each fund, maybe bet on 40 to 80 companies. Mm. And so you get many more shots on gold so to speak. They're really just looking for a small number of wildly successful outcomes and then a small number of moderately successful ones. The smaller the fund, the fewer of those they need. And a, in some cases, a single deal can return multiples of that fund. So that's the, that's the venture game. LPs, for lack of a better word, investors like ourselves, institutional or individual, we're never going to be able to time the market. Um, that's point one. There's too much lag in the system of the money going in over a number of years, then over an even longer number of years into the companies themselves, staying in the company for an even longer amount of time and what comes out the back end, you just can't time it. And it's so important to do, make the best investments. You, if, you, if one were to try to market time, you very quickly end up with a horrible portfolio because what happens is, say there's great venture firm A that gives you an allocation. If you opt out because you think it's a bad time, you're never getting back into that firm. <laughs> so you're gonna quickly select yourselves out of the best firms, which we know generate the best returns. Um, and then you're gonna go into these other B or C opportunities. And so really what you're doing and in, in, you know, done well is you're making a decision to um, give discretion to the underlying managers to make those nat you know, those calls about valuation and timing money into companies and how they manage it. And the best venture capital and private equity managers are really, really good at that, far better than we can be. So, so what, so, so uh, I wanna stop here because this, this, this is an interesting point. So you commit to a, uh, you commit to a fund, 
Right. Now the, fu the, the fund manager is, is looking for opportunities if he has the, the right pedigree that we look for, a, a discipline process, have been around, all of that stuff. So he was, he's going to look for the right opportunity to put money to work at the right valuation. Right. And this could drag over a three to four years? Correct. So a, a given firm might raise, in normal times, raise a fund every two to four years. Okay. And they would take that period, two to four years, to a, carefully assemble a portfolio of, you know, probably dozens of bets. Certain strategies might be more concentrated in private equity, right? You might see funds with 10 or 15. But they're going to pick their bets. And then, um, and then when they're done with that capital, they'll go raise another fund. But they're going to then manage that portfolio of investments made beyond a decade, right? Some of, the, some of the stragglers, which might be wildly successful outcomes or ones that are struggling. And so, um, so you get, um, so it's, it's hard for us. If we decided it's a bad time or it's a good time to do or not do something in this moment in time, one, you're not going to get invited back once you leave the family. But there's so much time, you know, basically there's a decade or more from the, the, the decision that we make to go into a fund to the exit of the last company at the very end of a fund. And, and putting money to work. Right. Putting yeah, along the way, right, there'll be opportunities to put more money into underlying businesses. They might merge into others, right? They might be successive rounds of financing where the manager might choose to come in because they believe there's value even at the higher valuation. So it, that, that's how it works. And so what we, you know, the best investors of our level of the capital structure tend, you know, tend to not market time. There are some exceptions in radical times, and you have to manage your own portfolio, you have to manage your own liquidity and illiquidity. But, but wouldn't you say if you want to tick the box of the perfect fund manager, it's the guy who says, you know, okay, if we play, if we play back this two, three years, so let's assume, okay, there are indicators, there's fraudulence in the market, but, you know, uh, we've raised the money and, and there, is, there is an investment period. So wouldn't you say, you know, the most, the most disciplined manager is the guy who is disciplined. Okay, I don't like this, value, this, this, this valuation. I'm, I'm going to wait. And then, and of course, it, it depends now if his timing is perfect, but he could be off, 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 off a bit with the timing. And then he starts really with his discipline process deploying the money over a couple of years. That, that's right, right? So, so the, the perfect fund manager mm -hmm. who's been through cycles and is incented to deliver a great outcome and, and perfect fund manager would have a lot of their own money in with yours, right? So it matters to them from that perspective. They would be much more careful during frothier times, slow, not embarrassed that they're not putting much money to work. Um, and then they would be, you know, more active w as the environment changes, as they start seeing value. The, the perfect fund manager knows an area, a sector, a type of company so well that they're going to have a feel for sort of, you know, riskiness and value over periods of time. They're, they're deep into the weeds with the, the companies, the management teams, the entrepreneurs, the sectors, evolu if it's tech, the evolution of technology and so forth. 
and, and they're going to be way more adept at doing that than people like us. Even professionals with decades in the business, they're just going to be, they're better placed, more experienced. Where, where we come in is assessing and grading what makes a good manager or not. Were they lucky or were they good, right? Did they add value to entrepreneurs, right? And doing our own work to conclude that. But we're not, like, we can't really replace their judgment with our own. That would be a bad move. Yeah, I mean, I guess this really comes with being objective and humbled by, by the markets to really see how these managers have done and whether you can do it do that approach yourself anyway. Because because also to me, when I hear people talking about investing themselves directly, I, I, I almost you know feel that they 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 have a lack of appreciation of the culture of building a firm, of going and and, and every day, you know, looking for these investments, being disciplined about it, having even you know having a process of an investment committee where people argue things out, thinking what could go wrong in, in these investments versus everybody really uh, drinking the Kool-Aid and right. thinking everything, everything is fine. Yeah, I'd say uh, that's a great point, Hashem. You know, we've, we've each been in partnerships and firms, organizations, investment committees for a long time. And of course, we've studied them for the managers, the underlying managers probably seeing hundreds or thousands over the years. And those subtle dynamics of decision-making, and especially during stress periods or buoyant periods, um, and appreciating those nuances is a really important thing for capital allocators and investors from, you know, at our level. I want to move now to secondaries. I mean, there is, sure. there is secondaries and then there is different derivatives of it as in providing capital for people who want to uh, uh, either monetize because these, these investments have taken longer than what they anticipated. Uh, back in 08 or po post 08, uh, uh, we both saw, you know, what can happen if somebody who is managing, who has a, a, a private equity or venture portfolio and has, has overcommitted. Yeah. And we saw where secondaries can trade as, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, no, we saw a discount of 50%. 100% in many cases for a few quarters, yeah. Uh, and, and I guess fast forward now that industry has evolved. So yeah. there are large secondary funds and there is almost more, more of a market for that you can, and you can trade these, these things. But like everything else, it's a supply demand. Yeah. So uh, liquidity is is there most when you don't need it. Right. What's your take on it as another route to to getting access to venture and private equity? Because because I think this could be timely in a sense that in in a one year or two years time, those people who got into these investments that underappreciated their liquidity or maybe their circumstances changed that they want to sell. Yeah. Yeah. Is this is this another venue for someone who allocates capital? To look for that, or the obvious thing is because you don't have the Jacob, or you could be getting access to, to managers. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question. You know, the quick answer is maybe selectively, but not in any methodical way that one should spend a whole lot of energy or sort of make it a big part of what you do. You know, my first experience with secondaries was coming out of the 1999-2000. Um, environment, then 9-11 happened and the markets, you know, crashed for a long period of time. And so, 
in 0201, 0203. At that point, there was the there wasn't really a secondary industry. There were, I mean, it was minuscule. There weren't big players. Maybe they were the beginning of some commercial funds, but it was like, it was a speck compared to today. Then in 08, 09, there was a much more severe cataclysmic downturn. And there was a bit of an industry, but I think the moment overwhelmed the industry at that point. And, you know, I remember doing 45 or 50 deals over a nine month period. You know, we were, we collaborated on that then. And probably half those deals were at 100% discounts, meaning the seller had committed maybe 30 million to a fund, paid in 10, was worried about their unfunded, and was willing to give that 10. <laughs> now, of course, you'd say, okay, it wasn't worth 10, it was worth less, but I knew it wasn't worth zero, right? And we, and we were able to back up a truck and do deals from great sellers. Uh, there, there was an industry then, but now that industry is so much larger, so liquid, and actually much more efficient. So actually, I would rarely say this about anything, but I don't see the days returning to the 0203, let alone that moment in time, 08 for half a year where there was that situation. There's just too many players, too much liquidity. That's good for sellers, it's better for sellers. And it really took a overwhelmingly severe downturn to overwhelm that industry at that point. Um, now, that's long-winded, but I think where, where, where I do see situations are kind of one-offs. Typically, they're as follows, and they happen in private equity and in venture capital. Most, most firms have sort of a friends and family sort of pool. It's not a separate pool, but they let you know, smaller investors in that are in their ecosystem, often entrepreneurs that they want to continue to do business with and stuff like that. And even the great venture capital firms that are sort of closed have that. If you're an entrepreneur, you're known to them, they'll let you come in and put anywhere from a few hundred thousand to a few million to tens of millions in their fund. Now, those when there's trouble, those it's often those folks. That get the call. Right? right, it's somebody who thought they were worth X and they had all this stock and suddenly the stock trades down 90% and they're worried they overextended themselves. And so what, what happens is the GP will quietly try to play, help their friend out by placing it. They're not gonna buy it themselves but they'll try to line up somebody else they know who will help them out. I've even seen divorce situations where somebody <laughs> has to sell their portfolios. And those are quiet calls. And, and sometimes if you get lucky, it's an entrepreneur that's been in four or five funds. I, this has happened a few times with me where I got a great call, which was, hey, do what you can, help him out. And you don't try to take advantage, but you'll get, you'll be able to add a discount. And, interesting. and, it's, and it's often a manager that would never come up on, on the market. Like you're never gonna see a Sequoia secondary ever out there or a Greylock secondary, but they do happen quietly behind closed doors. You can't put a lot of money, that, that's why I say you can't sort of have a policy and a sort of an allocation to that kind of thing. But it's another reason to consistently invest with these best firms to get to know them, to be that call that they want to make when they get a situation like that, right? That's part of the technique of doing this well, sort of cons consistently over time. Versus saying as, I mean, versus saying, let me just go through secondaries and I'm, I'm gonna build my portfolio this way. Right, like, 
you don't want to do most of those deals. They would come up with B or C managers. They're not going to be great portfolios. They're not going to be at big discounts. The, you know, it's just not worth doing because it'll steer you into subpar funds, mm -hmm. right? Whereas if you can do this well and get into a top tier group of funds, you're better off with your money from the beginning in those rather, rather than trying than. to get cute. And you will get the odd call in situations where they have some quiet situation that they want to help out an investor that's having some problems that needs to get out of that. And so that, that kind of happens every year a few times, regardless of the environment. These are like one-off situations. They not tend to be environmentally driven. Sometimes they are. But it's not big enough to make it a big deal, right? And so the model is you commit to a fund, the, the manager rightly so, he'll wait for the opportunity to go and draw, draw the money. Sometimes it follows the schedule that he shares with you, sometimes it is, it is not so. So we all know from our background and what we do currently that com the managing the commitment is, is also a part of the challenge of managing a, a private equity and a venture program. Because in right. a way you have to commit to that program and then you have, you have to manage this. And there are extremes in how to manage that. You can, you can say, let me put all the money in cash. Right. And people would earn a return on that cash. Or let me manage a portfolio the way institutions and endowments uh, uh, manage it. Uh, and, or, and or a mix of those. Interestingly, the, the, the research we did that if you leave the money in cash and, and if you hit a period of low interest rates, the returns, the blended return of money in cash waiting to be to be deployed uh, ends up you know, being not that attractive. Right. Although people don't look at it this way because right. uh, you're looking really at the return of an asset class. The, more, the, the, the better approach which what, we, which what we saw is that if you're able to deploy money in, uh, away from cash to earn a, 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 to earn a return but in a very diversified, economically balanced way, you do, you do a better return. How have you seen uh, uh, you know, investors react to, to, uh, 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 to this, not necessarily in the institutional world, but as now this is the, the private equity and venture becoming also more of the norm for, for uh, family offices or, or maybe offered for the high, ultra high net worth individuals? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've hit the nail on the head with one of the big issues for most investors for not just venture capital, private equity, but all typical private asset class, illiquid drawdown funds, right? You know, if you're at a huge, sophisticated organization, Stanford Endowment, Abu Dhabi Investment Council, right? They're very sophisticated about their asset allocation, capital call cycles, and having enough liquidity to pay them and stress testing that. But certainly individuals, but even quite large institutions, family offices, et cetera, it, um, don't, you know, there are a lot of reasons why it's easy to get overextended and, and or they're overly conservative and you know, for good reason, leave money just sitting in cash against those real legal IOUs that you have when you commit to a fund. So it's a, it's a big issue. And as you pointed out, if your money's sitting there in cash, for years at a time, right? You might be getting 20 or 30% if you've done it really well returns. If, if you took a whole 10 year period, half or more of the money is gonna be sitting in cash waiting for that as you pointed out at 
neutralizes those returns. So it's a big issue, and I think what we've been working on together is our solution, like elegant solutions to that, which I think are, you know, very innovative and frankly revolutionary and sort of, you know, providing an alternative to that barbell approach that most have to have to follow unless you're very big, very sophisticated. Which leads me also, you know, to, 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 to the other question which you continuously get asked by friends and family and what have you, where to invest. Right. So when I started Lewa, you know, my idea was to, uh, to help the community because I saw the level of what we were doing at the organization level and then the rest of the community was, you know, uh, whether it's taking a bond and levering it up to make to make a return or to buy a stock here or, or, or just, you know, general portfolio construction that is interesting, although in times like today when, uh, when inflation is playing a role, this year we saw stocks and bonds falling. So, right. so everything fell except commodities, which if you, if you tell me this is what inflation was going to be the dominant factor, I would tell you this is what would happen. Two years later, I, I started to recognize, you know, that the biggest impact you could have is really on the on the average investor who really does not have the the uh, the uh, it's it's not his forte. He doesn't have the know-how because he it's he's he's a doctor or he's doing something else. How could you really get get to him at this to to, to address his his needs at a time when uh, 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 when you know there are all of these things being being thrown at you. Now it's becoming the thinking that the democratization of alternative investing, which is another word for saying, let's give let's give the average person also the ability to invest in this approach of of, of investing that has been successful. You want to call it the Yale endowment model, or just you know the, the, the combining the use of alternatives. So to me, you know, trying to 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 give access to these investors. Uh, from from our know-how, our experience, and also at the same time, uh, you know, showing them what what really is the proper way of managing it versus let's follow what is attractive is really the name the name of the game, and that's why I like you know your your, your approach of trying to now marry the know-how and the access with building a fintech thing that can attract all of these guys, attract them as in. Offering them an easy solution versus, you know, thinking, no, well, uh, you know, like trying to explain these things to them and then they cannot invest in it. It's, it's nice in theory. Yeah. Like, like if you think about our conversation, if somebody is watching it, and I would tell you, okay, great idea, so how can I do it? And the next answer, you have to have an answer for that. Yeah. So if you take a consideration, you know, uh, someone who uh, has a saving, uh, it's a small amount of saving, and he's watching us. Nice, everything. So how can I do it? That's where you know the, I can see the idea of the democratization of alternatives. But why don't you just you know sort of uh, share with me uh, what's what's the thinking here? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fascinating and in some cases you know um, curious dynamic uh, where. There's no doubt globally that done well, these asset classes um, have been the domain of the very, very elites, like the largest pensions, sovereign wealth funds, elite endowments, some family offices. 
as you dec yeah, and and you're talking you know sort of hundred billion at t tens to hundred billion to trillion dollar entities, everybody else whether they're pensions, family offices, individuals, foundations, and endowments, get very little or they get second or third tier opportunities that are very expensive and the outcomes are much more poor. That, and so it's not surprising that if you go to the Yale or Stanford endowment, these asset classes make up 40, 45%, in some cases, even 50% or more of the, those entire endowments are in those two asset classes. And the returns will reflect that. The higher returns means the overall pool do better. And this has been the case for decades. And yet you go outside of that realm, if you just look at sort of wealth managers in the US, the penetration of venture capital private equity is low single digits, right? You have 45% at Yale, one, two, three percent at most, and, and many and many most have no exposure whatsoever. So that's a pretty stark dynamic. Um, the second thing that's interesting to me is, well, if you just most people, even in the investment business, the world seems to revolve around public companies, public equity, right? If you look at portfolios, public equity will make up 60, 70, 80 percent of the, the exposure in those portfolios. But if you take a step back, you just look at companies. If you look at, for instance, the United States, one of the most you know, mature, sophisticated financial markets, and you take companies, let's say, above 50 million of revenue a year, so you know, kind of real substantial companies, nine out of 10 companies are private. And so in the US, there's 50,000 companies with 50 million or more of revenue a year. 5,000 make up the entire public markets in the United States. 45,000 are, are private companies. Even if you look at companies with a billion dollars of revenue or more, more than half are private. And so if you think about the, the industry, the businesses from your Blackstones and, and, and alternative managers, your KKRs, your Schwab, Charles Schwab's, Vanguard, Fidelity, all that is one is focused on trying to get a financial return out of one out of 10 companies out there. And so when I read in the paper, you know, the overhang of capital, private equity is so much, the, the returns are bound to come down. It's st still so wildly less efficient, right? And so if you marry the fact that the vast majority of the investment world, regardless of the type of um, entity or individual, has little to no exposure in those proven high-returning asset classes, and the fact that most of the economic engine around the world are private businesses, you know, to me, that's a multi-decade opportunity where there, there, there will be a set of players that figure out how to enable many more investors than currently do uh, to invest in those um, in those areas of the economy and private businesses, whether it's sort of early stage technology or traditional private equity. And the hurdles are simple. You know, where do you go? Like um, fees are a big issue. Illiqui you know, um, minimums are a big issue. Um, the fact that it takes millions to tens of millions as an entry ticket, right? And, and then as you know, the, the laborious process of signing up subscribing is designed by lawyers and others that make it a very cumbersome thing to do, even if you ha even if you know where to go and you can write a large check. So, and this is true around the world. Like you know, what an individual in the United States or in England or in Singapore or in Africa needs 
it really isn't different. Um, there might be some subtle differences in terms of currency denomination, et cetera. Um, and certainly there's decades of proven how do you do this well data out there by those sophisticated individuals. So it's an interesting situation. I think it's a huge opportunity. It was an, it's an opportunity that would do a great deal of good for deserving people, institutions, pensions out there. So, so just let me understand you. So you're saying that Mr. X, you know, you want to invest, you have savings. You're going to invest your savings by being able to own new technology companies, good private businesses. You're going to also be invested in liquid markets. You're going to be invested in real estates, all of these things in one offering. Well, I guess what I'm saying at a high level is, one, there's lots of warnings, right, which is, these are illiquid asset classes. You can't change your mind or have an emergency and have to go get that money. You know, so these are long-term investments. They should be a small percentage, certainly to start, of anyone's portfolio. You have to really understand what clearly is one's or one institution's long-term capital, right? So those are, those are the warnings. And then, like, we've had a conversation about how do you do this well. Done well, one, you know, uh, an investor should get diversification by vintage, mm -hmm. by you know, ideally into super high quality firms and funds, mm -hmm. but some diversification there. You know, my view is at least two or three years vintage diversification, at least two dozen firms. And that then, if you just run the simple numbers of how many companies are in a fund, gets you into the hundred, you know, sort of company diversification that would be sort of 400 to 800 companies. So if you think about like an index like the S&P 500 as being a well-diversified index, mm -hmm. right, it basically parallels that. And then, and then the money goes into the ground very slowly. It's not just three vintage years, but it actually goes in over sort of five, six vintage years, right? But absolutely, uh, natural resources, infrastructure, real estate all play important roles in very sophisticated elite portfolios. And there are, you know, real estate has REITs, listed REITs. So there, there are public or liquid versions that smaller investors can participate in, in some of those. There's almost nothing in venture capital and there's very little in, you know, I'd say sort of true private equity. That's changing a little bit, right? You can own a piece of EQT or KKR by or Palo by investing in the public markets. There's listed secondary entities. Um, there's the GP stakes phenomenon. Um, so that's, that's changing. But if you, if you think about the fact that 90% or more of these economies of, of private companies are in that category, there's so very little investment options. But I am, I, you know, I am, I am still uh, the Dave, you know, so sort of picturing, let's say, you know, someone walking in my office, my, my assistant, she asked me, I have savings. To, to be able to offer her that experience that the uh, large endowment or, 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 or large, large institution uh, uh, has in terms of taking the money up front, managing the commitment, putting it in uh, you know, high quality private equity funds, venture, venture funds. It's, it's almost to me kind of the, the, the proper way for someone, if he has money for his children's education or for his retirement to manage it versus being hostage to uh, uh, you get, 
you get, let's say, a 10-year uh, period of stock market going nowhere, that really eats. And we've seen that. We, uh, we have yeah. seen that, you know, from 2000, 2010, U.S. equities went nowhere. Right. In the 70s, you had the problem with the, uh, uh, with the stagflation, which, you know, uh, I do hope we don't get into a period, a period like that. So it looks to, I mean, you know, the, 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 the way now I'm picturing this, you're actually really f f finding a very good uh, 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 solution for people, how to manage their, their uh, savings. And it's, it's really thinking how to access them yeah. through using uh, the, uh, uh, the innovative the, the fintech approach. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you just picture theoretically if anybody had access to the stamp or the Abu Dhabi Investment Council venture a private equity portfolio where there was no minimum, they could put $10 in, 200 euro, 1,000 pounds. So high quality portfolio, fair or very low. You know, if you think of sort of Vanguard has brought down to like three basis points, you can own the S&P 500, it used to be 1% for a fair fee, you know, transparent. Um, uh, if the onboarding process was as simple as signing up for Uber, let's say, and then if it was a turnkey where you don't have to deal with capital calls, that cash gets professionally managed, that there's some return options um, instead of just cash, that sort of thing. I mean, the market for that, which is truly global, is, I would, I'm hard pressed to think of a bigger, you know, demand situation opportunity. And 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 what it does, the good that it does, does two things. It's it's the right discipline if you take care with sort of risks and stuff. The the discipline that look, I'm going to put something away that I can't go access for you know upwards of ten years, not entirely, but basically, I'm going to get it out of my hands. I can't sort of do other things with it. That's a great discipline for some portion of one's capital for those that have even a little bit to put away. And then if, as you said, like if it's compounding at double digits or maybe even like very high double digit rates for long periods of time, the power of compounding, obviously it's, it's immense, right? Um, and so, you know, something that might compound where it doubles every three, four, five years, which would sort of be teens to twenties compounding. Mm -hmm. And it's put away for 10, 15, 20 years changes people's financial situation. I remember when I was born, my, my grandmother gave me like a $100 little savings bond that I, I still have because it was, <laughs> wasn't much. And I think the interest rate was like 2.75%. And, uh, you know, if that had been a, uh, you know, a $100 unit in a venture capital portfolio, you know, it would be you know, compounded for that amount of time, 57 years, it turns in, you know, it's a material thing. You often hear the anecdotes. I knew Warren Buffett in 1970. I bought one share of Berkshire Hathaway at, you know, $3 and it's worth X. You know, compounding over long periods of time has that impact. But again, the key is, the key is it's done in a discipline process. It's diversified. It's really a... Fairly priced. Yes. Right? low minimum, so you're not forcing people to put too much in just to meet some minimum and so forth. If you can eliminate barriers to doing it, meaning like if you can make it a quick and easy process, obviously 
there has to be disclosure. There's rules and regulations. These are heavily regulated, and the regimes vary around the world. You have to, but you know, the regulatory regime. There's a democracy push there. You know, why, why are the rules stacked against small investors? Well, some would say they're there to protect small investors from being taken advantage of, and that's a, that's an important. There's lots of examples of that, but there's a balance there. It's also keeping smaller investors out of the benefits of 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 these things. Yeah, I, I always find it, you know, so I, I don't like leverage to magnify a return. I like leverage to, to diversify. However, the regulations allow, allow a bank to offer, uh, to offer uh, an investor leverage, let's say, on bond and have him go through a margin call. Right. But they don't, but they consider, you know, an, uh, allowing an investor to buy in a, in a hedge fund, as an example, where they're using leverage to, to diversify and to hedge themselves, is they need to have a, a, a higher, a, a, they need to be accredited and, uh, and someone who knows what, what he's doing. Yeah. Which is, yeah, that's exactly right. You got margin loans on risky stocks or cryptocurrencies. Obviously, there's a mortgage market, but there's people that flip homes and do other things, and then hedge funds are off limits. Um, now, some rightly so, <laughs> uh, but um, but as a category, that doesn't make sense. Dave, it's always you know uh, good chatting, chatting with you. I know that today we are uh, in a in a city where you where you can hear hear the tube. There is an airline, helicopters. Sirens, construction next door. Uh, but uh, an interesting discussion keeps you focused and not really worry about what's going uh, around you. I am actually uh, very excited about uh, that initiative that, that, that you're trying to put uh, together because as I said at the onset, you know, my, I, I really wanted to take away from what we've learned over our 30 plus years allocating capital to share it with the general public, and that's how we uh, we also offered funds to to do that. Uh, but uh, to be able also to broaden that uh, 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 knowledge is would be a perfect. So, so I look forward to working with you on that uh, at per project, and also I do hope also that you know people take away from our our discussion that. Uh, you know, venture is interesting. Private equity is investing is interesting. Liquid liquid markets are are, are interesting. But one has really to be disciplined about how to invest uh, with them. We both have chosen the path because of seeing different cycles, and seeing what the professionals can do to realize that if you if if, if you give as, as as there is a saying in Arabic and I think in different culture, give. The, the baker, uh, uh, his uh, role to make to bake the, the, the bread for you versus you you doing it is a better approach. Well, it, it's it's great great always great to get together to mm -hmm. catch up on uh, the environment and um, the various things that we see. It's been such a great collaborative relationship for a decade and a half, and um, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.